0: Built Not Born, episode 28. I'm Joe Chikarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode, we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Alberto Robbio. Alberto Rabayo is a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under the legendary Hordeon Gracie, the eldest son of Elio Gracie, the founder of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Alberto is the owner and head instructor at Malaki Flow Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy with locations in Philadelphia, Miami, and soon Charleston, South Carolina. Alberto, born in Bogota, Colombia, has a fascinating story that he shares with us. That takes us from his hometown of Bogota to Australia, Mexico, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and now Charleston, South Carolina. Alberto graduated with a business degree in Columbia, then soon ventured off to Australia, where he earned a degree in film and television production. While in Australia, Alberto worked on feature films and documentaries, while also working as a dive master and scuba diving instructor. Then, one day, Alberto discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Alberto tells the story of how a brief stopover in Los Angeles changed his life. During that stopover, he not only met the Gracie family, but his future wife. Soon, Alberto found himself living in Los Angeles and training full-time at the Gracie Academy in Torrance. Not having any money to pay the tuition at the Gracie Academy, Alberto worked as a janitor, cleaning the school to pay for his tuition. In our conversation today, Alberto and I discuss why training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is such a powerful, positive force in people's lives. Alberto also shares with us the story of a motorcycle accident he was in back in 2016 that required multiple surgeries and years of recovery. And why he thinks that accident, quote, was a great thing that happened to him and how the accident brought about positive and needed changes in his life. We also discuss what lessons he learned from being a small business owner during a global pandemic and what life lessons he took from the COVID shutdown that he is carrying forward with him into the future. I was so excited when Alberto agreed to come on the show and share his remarkable story. Alberto is just an awesome guy. He is candid. He speaks with emotion and passion. He's one of the most interesting people you'll run into. Besides being a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he's an entrepreneur. He's a family man. He speaks three languages. He's produced movies and documentaries. He's been a dive master, scuba diving instructor. Heck, he even jumps out of airplanes. Pretty cool. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Alberto Rubio, Hordeon Gracie Black Belt, Dive Master, documentary maker, and head instructor and owner of Malaki Flow Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Academy. And remember, life is built, not born. Alberto Robaio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe, for having me. It's great to
1: see you and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for thinking that what I have to say is worthy enough for others to, to listen to. And it's a pleasure and an honor.
0: For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: I am a father, husband. I teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I am originally from uh, Bogota,
0: Colombia, South America. Could you tell us about where you grew up?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in, in Bogota. Bogota is the capital city of, of Colombia. Colombia is at the northern most part of South America is connected to Panama. It's a great country. It's very biodiverse. It's near the equator, so it's in the tropics. What happens in the tropics is that climate is regulated by altitude, meaning that if you are at the sea level, it's always summer weather around you know 90 degrees. As you go higher up in the mountains and, and in, Col- in Colombia, you have the and there's mountains which divide into three different mountain chains. And There's a lot of cities and towns in these mountains. And the, the higher you go, the, the colder it gets. For the most part, most of the year is it's pretty much the same temperature. So Bogota is 2,800 meters above sea level, which makes it roughly like 7,000 feet. It's almost like fall all year round. So it's pretty nice weather. Cool in the morning, cold at night. Get warm during the day. It's a city of about 8 million people. So it's pretty big. And that's where I grew up. Yeah.
0: I want to get into jujitsu. What brought you to the United States from Colombia? But before we do that, wanted to go back all the way from the beginning. What was it like around the dinner table when you were 10 years old? I find that a very formidable time in people's lives. Who was around the dinner table? Uh, Describe the scene. So
1: great question. Around that time when I was 10 or younger, it depends because my parents uh, divorced when I was three years of age. During the week, I would be with my mom, and on the weekends, I would be with my dad. So it depends where I was or what time of the week it was. But typically, dinner table, it would be my brother and my mother during the week. Usually, my mom would arrive from working all day. And she would either make dinner or in Colombia, it's common to have a maid come to your house. So maybe the maid would have made dinner and we would all eat together. During the weekends, if I was with my dad, my dad lived with his parents, so my grandparents. So we would all gather at the dinner table. It was a big, uh, long, old-fashioned dinner table. We would all have dinner together. It was uh, just great memories of always Eating together, the importance of family, of sitting down and enjoying a meal that somebody has cooked. And and yeah, that that was pretty much the scene. What's the most vivid memory of
0: your childhood?
1: There are many vivid (laughs) memories, a lot of happy memories. There was this one time where we were in Santa Marta, and a lot of my cousins and uncles were there. My uncle at the time was in the Navy, and the Navy had clubs or resorts. Throughout the country for the officers. Santa Marta is in, in the north of Colombia. It's in the Caribbean Ocean. It's a beautiful place. There was only a certain amount of room in the car and there was only enough room for a few of us and the rest would remain a few more days in Santa Marta. Most of the kids, me being the youngest, wanted to go back to Barranquilla so the adults decided to organize some type of raffle to decide who would return in the car. And, and the last seat I won. So I was very happy. However, <laughs> my cousins from here, from the United States, were visiting. And my oldest cousin really wanted to go back to Bahrain, but she lost. So the adults... In a very tyrannical way, decided that (laughs) she was going to take my spot and I were to remain in Santa Marta. I thought that was extremely unfair and I got extremely upset and I left. And this is a a big resort. I decided to climb up on this mountain, very steep mountain. There were a lot of cacti in the mountain. I was pretty high up and I started getting stung by thorns and stuff like that. And I was there for hours. I stayed there for hours everybody was looking for me they have uh, alerted the, the guards in the base i think after four hours maybe five i decided to come down on the way down because it was so stiff it was very hard to get down so i took a lot of punishment from the cacti and the thorns <laughs> very painful so once i got down my uncle Mike, who was in the navy he was the officer showed up just by himself and he sat down with me and he said, I I understand you're upset and it's not fair what's happened. I'm just going to tell you something that my dad told me or or that he learned from life. He had asked me where I was and I told him so. And he said, all the time you were there like upset and soaking and complaining about how unfair this had been. We were all down here having fun because we didn't realize you were gone. You need to realize that You have a choice to make when things like this happen to you and you can choose to affect you in a negative way or you can choose to have them affect you in a positive way because for most of the time you were gone, we were all having fun. Guess who was the only one not there? Guess who was the only one not having fun? Who was the only one not enjoying it? It was you. So if you had a different attitude about it, you could have let it go a little bit quicker you wouldn't have experienced all the pain you experienced by going into the mountain and missed out on a joyful time that we were all having and that really changed my perspective on on things understanding that things are going to happen to you no matter what unfair things unfortunate things challenging things we cannot control those but what we can control is our attitude towards those things
0: that story is a microcosm of stoicism. One of the tenets of stoicism is that it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's all about how you respond. And then you, control, you control the meaning of an event. The, the event's almost inanimate and you determine if it's good or bad or happy or sad. And it's it's your response and your reactions. And that, that determines the basically the course of your life. That's what you're saying, right?
1: Yes. And in many ways, I link it to jujitsu. When you're sparring, it's hard to control how your sparring partner and i would say even in a real fight how an opponent that's fighting for their life is going to react you cannot tell you have to wait and see and from that reaction you have to make the best out of it but the only way you can make the best out of that reaction or allow that type of reaction to favor you is by being observant trying to stay calm trying to stay relaxed assess all the possibilities and if you're well prepared you'll be able to opt for the best option that your opponent has given you. And I think that's the beautiful thing about Jiu Jitsu is that the the connections with everyday life and the practice of of the art.
0: I want to go deep into Jiu Jitsu, but before we do, you have an interesting background. In college, you got your BFA in film, your production. Interesting. How did you get into that? (laughs) How did you film, video, TV production, working documentaries in Australia, LA, in Mexico, how would you get into film?
1: I graduated university in Colombia with a business degree. I started working at a corporation, and it was a, an amazing job. It was like my dream job, and I was like, "Man, I can't believe I, I nailed it and I got it and it's so cool." And after three years, I realized that was not what I wanted to do with my life. I looked at my options. I thought Sydney, Australia, would be a good place to to go and try to be by myself and change perspective and change things for a while so I went there initially for bachelor's degree in environmental sciences because I was into scuba diving a lot and I thought it was really cool to scuba dive and that world was I was very passionate about it when I arrived to Sydney and I got the the tour of the university and a better understanding of what the course entailed I realized that I would spend most of the time in a lab or in front of a computer processing data or information, and I'm like, well, it's very similar to the corporate life because that's not what I want to do. And a good friend of mine was doing film at the time. I decided to study film and TV production, and you learn how to operate a camera and uh, edit, put together a script, a proposal, run a budget, and organize a film crew. I did two short films there of my own, and I helped him out a bunch of short films, one or two feature films.
0: Of all the great places to relocate your life, how did you realize Australia was the place?
1: So like a lot of things in my life, I have realized what I don't want to do or where I don't want to be first. That kind of leaves some options open. I knew I did not want to come to the United States because I had been coming here for a while. I had family here. I did not like it. The United States in my mind had a bad rep through media and what you hear when you're outside of the United States. And I didn't want to be close to family. I wanted to be like left to my own devices, uh, to have like more of an adventure and a challenge and be able to really know myself. And uh, I had a a few friends in Australia and they spoke about how great it was. So I'm like, you know what? It seems like a, a good place for me to be. The other thing is realizing that as a Colombian, there are, at the time, there were not a lot of places where we would be welcome because of drug trafficking and all these issues that were arising from, specifically from Colombia at the time. So my options were very limited on where I could go and and do study abroad. So Australia were one of the few places on the list that allow that.
0: You're in Australia, you work a couple of years at a corporate job, you got your scuba diving, you're a dive master, you're doing really cool stuff in the water, you're doing video, film, production, doing documentaries. At what point does jujitsu come into your life?
1: So jujitsu came to my life in Colombia when I was in university. I was big into rock climbing. We go rock climbing every weekend, had a great group of friends and I was loving it. I became very close friend with Ricardo Bayona, who's my business partner and, and best friend for, for a long time. Ricardo was big into working out at the gym. And a friend we had in common well, looked at me and he said, dude, you are how did he put it? He said, You are skinny, you're skinny where you should be fat, and you're fat where you be skinny yeah i thought it was hilarious and and he was right it was very like lanky and, and very skinny i had a little bit of a belly maybe i'm still pre. i am still like that i re- i'm the first one to recognize i'm still fat where i should be skinny and skinny where i should be fat but it was it was even worse back then so my friend ricardo also laughed he was there and he said you should come to the gym with me so i started doing that and in that process there was somebody he knew who did kickboxing and was very good, very talented. We started training kickboxing with him. And in the past, I had done karate. I've always liked and been drawn to martial arts. We started doing kickboxing with him. He started teaching us and he knew a little bit of jiu-jitsu. So this is late 90s, I think, maybe even 2000. He knew a few moves and we started learning about it. And it was mesmerizing. It was amazing. And kickboxing, I remember always being hurt and my shins were hurt a lot. My ribs would be bruised, my face swollen and stuff like that. But with jiu-jitsu, you could train it and not get hurt. But nobody practiced it in Colombia. It was not very well known. So we started putting it together with some friends with wrestling and judo and whatever little jiu-jitsu we could find. And then this tape from Mario Sperry came about and we started looking at that tape and trying to extract some moves from that. And that's pretty much how I came in touch
0: with. Fast forward a little bit here, you actually worked at the Gracie Jiu Jitsu Academy in Torrance yes. with Henry yeah. Huron, with the Gracie family. And fast correct. forward to the end, you are a legit first generation black belt under on Gracie, correct? That's correct.
1: Yes.
0: So how do you go from <laughs> Colombia to Southern California training with the Gracies?
1: So from Colombia, Ricardo goes to Miami, gets his blue belt after graduating university comes back, starts teaching, you know, me, Jiu Jitsu. Was that you know, the more, Valente
0: brothers? Uh, Miami, that's the Valente
1: brothers. Yes, okay. he got okay. his blue belt from the Valente brothers. Mind blowing, amazing. I moved to Australia. I trained there at a Gracie Baja school under Marcelo Hesse, Gracie Baja black belt. I get my blue belt from him. And then on my way to Colombia for Christmas, I stop on LA. On the way back to Australia, I stop on LA for a little bit longer. And and I want to check out the Jiu-Jitsu scene in LA. I I knew the Gracie's were there. Hibson Gracie was there. Kaike at the time was there. The Machado brothers. It was already pretty big. Like now it's even bigger, but it was pretty big. So I wanted to to train at different schools and and learn from them. I stopped at the Gracie Academy and I had an amazing experience there. On the first day, I was with Ricardo. Actually, we were together visiting schools. It was just, they were so welcoming, so nice. Halleck Gracie was there. He was extremely kind with his time and and took interest in in two random blue belts. It had a great impact on me and and we decided to to train there with them and learn from them. Not, Not only because they were Gracie's, but just because of the whole experience.
0: You were there on a stopover. Did you decide to move there because of that? Because of that interaction,
1: because I met my wife.
0: Oh, at the same time. So you yeah. met the Gracies and your wife around the same time?
1: Yeah, so my, my wow. wife was roommate with a friend of mine from Colombia. And that's where we we're staying at the time. So it was just like the divine providence. Like so many things happen simultaneously. And so many signs that I should maybe, if I could stay in LA, in the United States that, that I ended up staying here. It's, it's been one of the greatest blessings in my life.
0: You move to LA, you meet your wife, you meet the Gracies. How do you go from training there to literally working there and helping run the school?
1: Because at the time I was on a tourist visa, I couldn't work and we couldn't pay for training. Both of us asked Orion if we could trade training for cleaning the school, the academy. So we were janitors at the academy and that's how we trained in exchange for training and we were out there all the time so meeting people and training with them and when we could we could you know, help people and the transition happened and this was thanks to Ricardo because he had a student ask him if he could teach in private and then Ricardo was like let me talk to the big man to Horion see if he's okay with that so he goes talks to Horion and hey Horian, can I Teach the student private lessons, and at the time only the Gracie family would teach. There were no non-Gracies teaching at the time. So Horion said, "You're not, you're not a Gracie, and you're a blue belt." And then Ricardo, I think this is how the story goes. He would tell it better. Said, "Why not?" The student approached me. He asked me, and isn't that how Elio Gracie got started in teaching? Why don't you give me a chance? He's interested in me teaching him. Maybe give me a chance. Give me an opportunity to teach him. And then Horion was like, you know, what? Well, yeah, you're right. Okay, you can teach. I think they got, went into a private room and Horion and, and showed him like a few strategies on, on how to approach teaching a private lesson. And then Ricardo started teaching privates. One student approached me once, hey, would you be willing to teach me private lessons? And of course, mine was, my process was easier and I started teaching private. And that's pretty much how we were able to start teaching private lessons at the Gracie Academy. And from there, we went to teaching group classes at the same time that the combatives program got developed. When we were purple belts, we started teaching private lessons, and then we were brown belts. That's when we started teaching group lessons.
0: You mentioned the combatives. Basically, the combatives, the Gracie family looked at All the techniques and all the fights they ever were in, and the way it was explained to me, they boiled it down to 36 moves that they developed while for the U.S. Army, and it basically gets someone as street-ready as possible in a limited amount of time. How would you describe the combatus program?
1: I couldn't have said it better than you. And that idea, it's understanding that there's a need in jiu-jitsu to give common people like regular people a set number of moves that they can quickly get proficient at a set number of moves that would allow them to survive a fight against a bigger and stronger opponent and which are those moves and those are the 36 moves
0: my first jiu-jitsu lesson it's uh, this is back in the day in max size. and i walk in and at the time i was the brown belt in tempo And I thought I was okay. Like I thought I I was like not bulletproof, but I thought I'd be pretty tough to beat up at the time. I walked in and Steve Maxwell was there and it's just, he and I, it was like a beginner class. He's like, all right, what would you do here? And he put me in a headlock, like a really deep headlock. He really dropped in the base. And I would probably still be there if he didn't let go. (laughs) Like I had no idea, like 10 years of martial arts. I had no answer to it. Then he goes, all right, do it to me. I did it to him. And he did like the combatives move to get out of a headlock. And I'm like, where do I sign up? Done. Like, all right, you got me. Like, and I literally traded the brown belt for a white belt, like on the spot. And uh, yeah, amazing stuff. How oh, that's you... pretty cool. Story. How many years you spent at the Academy? I think it was five years. At some point you make your way to Philadelphia. So how do you yes. go from the Gracie Academy to Philadelphia? It's
1: 2008. The housing bubble happens. There's an economic collapse. Because of that collapse, you know, a lot of the, the projects that I had going on or looking to film and do were completely shut down. My wife and I were in a, a pretty rough financial s- spot, so much so that we were coordinating our parents' visits so that... When they would come visit us, we could get our gas tanks filled so that they could fill their refrigerator so they could help us with bills and stuff like that. We already had our our first son, Vicente. He was born. I never really liked L.A. to raise a family. I I, I never felt at home in L.A. I was really there because of the opportunities for film production and for the Gracie academy. But then with this and and these hardships, we start realizing that we have to do something. We cannot keep us, as we're going because it's unsustainable. So one, one of the options is uh, to move with family. So we decide to move to Philly, where, where her family is from and she's from, and then be closer to family and have that support system. Because in LA, we're pretty much ourselves and that's
0: it. That's what drove that decision to move to Philly. You move out here and open up your own Jiu-Jitsu Academy, correct? Correct. Can you think of the first time you were looking at a building and you, you step in it and it's your academy? What's that like? What's that yeah, like? Uh,
1: how we did it, again, because we were we had a of debt, we had no money. She moved first with Vicente to her parents and we decided that I would stay in LA because at the time... I was working at the academy. I was working as an EMT with the fire department. One of the solutions that we had thought about before was for me to become a firefighter, which didn't happen because LA County and and LA Fire, LA City, they had frozen all, all hiring processes because the people who were going to retire couldn't retire anymore because they had lost their 401ks, their pensions, all of that. means if they don't retire there's no room for new people to come in so that got stagnant that was not going anywhere however i had a job i was working at the academy Uh, we had her move to philly first i rented a room at a friend's house and i would travel back and forth like once a month and in the process of traveling i started looking at places where i could rent some space and 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 maybe start offering jujitsu i was very lucky to come in contact with a great friend today. His name is David Kremen. And he had a karate school in, in a beautiful place, beautiful location in Windmark. So I go in with Trish, my wife, and Vicente. And I'm like, hey, man, do you consider letting me teach uh, jiu here in, in your space whenever you're not using it? And he's like, yeah, sure. Very cool. And I just couldn't believe it. And, and that's how I found that spot. And then I went to another place in Upper Derby and a similar story, in the process of those six months, I bought mats on a credit card, traveling back and forth, got everything ready, asked horion a bunch of questions about his time in the garage days and how to scale the business and all of that. And he was very helpful in the process and very informative and instructive he's always been very supportive and that's how the school got started in philly it was two locations and we would roll the mats every night and pick them up that was the beginning
0: I remember training with you one of the times there where it's a karate school, then all of a sudden you go like, right, go, and then all these mats come out and they go on the wall, <laughs> on the ground, it yes. was like changing a basketball court into a hockey rink. It was, it was like the crew came and then within a couple of minutes, it went from karate school to like fully matted. Yeah, we, we
1: had a, a whole process and very grateful for the students who, who were part of it and it's been a beautiful experience and journey
0: right now you have you have the location in philadelphia you have the location in florida right key Biscayne. yes yes where's your next one
1: charleston south carolina
0: really how'd you choose charleston
1: that's an interesting story last year through covid the the pandemic has been challenging for everybody it's brought good things and bad things to everybody so in that process we you know we paused and we we, with my wife and we looked at, at, at our lifestyle and how we're living and how things were before the pandemic, some of the things that th- the first months of, of, of the pandemic brought into light, the speed at which we were living our lives, how much we were enjoying the moments and the dinners and the process of observing our kids growing up and just you know the smaller things that were passing us by and we were not re- really savoring them, what type of environment we wanted our kids to grow up in, And that kind of started a a search to to see if there was a good time or maybe a a better place for the family to be or to live in. And, And we looked at different possibilities. One of my wife's friends had moved to a place near Charleston called John's Island. It looked very beautiful. We've always liked the South. We like how people are here. We like the manners. We have the values. We like how communities tend to be more grounded in religion and the Bible. I personally think that's important for a family and to raise your kids that way. The South was always something that that we considered. If we were going to retire one day or move one day, it should be the South. And being near the beach, nice weather, great people, great communities. We decided to come over the summer and check it out. Last year, my in-laws came with us on the trip. We looked at different possibilities. It was clear that wherever we moved, we would have the option of starting a jiu-jitsu school. And uh, this is a great market for that. It was a great place, great opportunity. So with all of that and being near the beach, weather, people being very cordial. You walk around and everybody waves at you and smiles at you and says, good morning. Teenagers open the doors for your wife or your kids. And they say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And it's, yeah, it can be small things, but I think those small things are representative of a lot of other things that make your everyday life better and more enjoyable. I think that type of influence is going to be good for my kids to grow up around
0: Usually in Philly, when they're waving to you in the car, it's usually just with one finger. Different. <laughs> yeah. Same wave, just a different number of fingers in the air. So the uh, when do you see your academy opening? February. Cool. Good yes. luck with that. Yeah. That's very exciting. We'll be under the same name, Milaki Flow?
1: Yeah, Milaki Flow.
0: How'd you come up with that name?
1: Earlier on, when we were talking about how I started Jiu-Jitsu, I mentioned a Mario Sperry tape, which was a copy of different VHS tapes. So it was... Not very clear. And the sound was not very good. And Mario Sperry, he's Brazilian. He has a thick Portuguese accent. I, I know I have an accent too, but he would say, oh, Milwaukee do the Milwaukee. And if you do this, you can get the Milwaukee and you can catch the Milwaukee. So when we were training and, and, and trying to understand what Jiu Jitsu was, we thought that there was a move called the Milwaukee and uh, we say, oh yeah, that's the milaki. Go for the Milwaukee, catch the Milwaukee. You got submitted with the Milwaukee. Fast forward, when I was training at Gracie Baja in Australia, in Sydney, I would hear my teacher sometimes say milaki this or milaki that, or some of the Brazilians that were training there say milaki, but I'm like, wait, they're not saying milaki, they're saying something else. It just sounds like milaki. What they were saying was arm lock. And if you have a thick Portuguese accent and you say it fast, when they say arm lock, they say army locky. And if you say it, if you make it like fast, a fast repetition of that sounds like milaki. <laughs> it was so silly of us to think that there was such thing called a milaki. That night, when I realized that was a mistake we were making, I called Ricardo, and I'm like, "Dude, I can't believe this." You know how we called the armbar the milaki? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the milaki. It's it's not. Portuguese for armbar is not like a jiu-jitsu name. It's just armlock, but they're saying Ar and we heard milaki, and we thought it was hilarious, and we laughed. And then when we were trying to come up with a name for our school in 2012, we thought that milaki would represent our journey in jiu-jitsu very well.
0: What do you think jiu-jitsu taught you?
1: A lot of it, it was taught through Khorian too, that there's always a better way. In combination with something I learned in scuba diving as an instructor, is that when you are faced with adversity or, or a challenge, the first thing you should do is pause, breathe, and understand your options so that you make the best decision possible
0: at the time. That's pretty powerful. You're saying when you're faced with adversity, the first thing you do is pause, breathe, then understand your options. That's a great. Thanks for sharing that. My pleasure. Also, to want to touch on, a few years back, we're in uh, an accident. Correct? Yes. Tell us about that. How that happened and how that influenced your training. Do you mind sharing that story?
1: Not at all. In, in Colombia, my when I was very young, my dad had a motorcycle. Friends did mo- motocross, so I, I grew up riding motorcycles. I had a motorcycle in Colombia. I was uh, a little bit reckless and irresponsible with it, but not, nothing ever happened, nothing big. And uh, fast forward, I'm living in Philadelphia. I had a motorcycle. On a Friday, I went to the school to teach a few classes. I think I had a two private. It had rained a little bit. I, I waited until it stopped raining and the road got a little bit dry and I was driving back home, and then a, a lady pulled out of a smaller street without looking, and I I wasn't able to stop. I hit the front part of her car, and I, I flew over her hood and landed on the opposite lane. And that, that So that was the accident itself. And then a funny part is that as soon as I landed, because my wife was waiting for me, my in-laws were at my house, I think had other family members, you know, my in-laws, my, all the kids at that time, my, my, wife was pregnant with my daughter. So it was my two boys, my in-laws, my wife were waiting for me for dinner. I had told her I'm on my way home. So when I landed, I knew to stay still, but I also knew that they were waiting for me for dinner and I was really close to my house, actually like a few blocks away. So I pulled out my cell phone, put it on the ground. I was in a lot of pain and I dialed and I'm like, honey, I'm, I'm Okay. But I was just in a motorcycle accident. Wow. So I, I knew I, I had to call her because if, if I didn't well, you know, they'd take me to the hospital, hours pass by or minutes pass by. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, I took the phone out. I called her. I told her that I, I was in an accident close to the house. I'm in this road. I knew I had to because she was waiting for me and it was going to I I shouldn't take that long. And then she was going to wear it and she was pregnant.
0: Wow. How bad, wh- wh- what type of injuries did you sustain? So
1: there were, there were s- several injuries and they put me in the gurney. So they put me in a gurney and my left knee was killing me. My an- my right ankle was pretty painful. I think that was like the most painful part of so the whole thing. So they take me to the hospital. Nothing major seemed to have happened. And when they transfer me to the bed and they start cutting all my clothes off and they move my, my leg, like tons of blood starts squirting out. Wow. So very quickly it goes from like mild trauma to a major trauma. There was a, a huge cut on the near my groin and it was just a few inches away from my femoral artery. Wow. So it didn't cut it of course because I I, I wouldn't be telling the story if that was the case. So then from there I'm on the operating table. They had to stop the bleeding and they're trying to put a, a, a tube through my urethra, but it's not going in. So there's some uh, urethra damage, but everything is so swollen. They cannot determine what it is. So they have to put a, a cath- catheter through my bladder. And yeah. I was with a catheter like for three months, I think. And they wow. didn't know if I was going to have have that as a permanent you know, thing or if my urethra eventually would heal itself and they would be able to remove the catheter and then of course the knee and the ankle we were which were the most painful where were a few fractures but they were the least concerning at the time
0: thank you for sharing that what year did that accident happen
1: that was 2016
0: well how long did it take you to recover so you felt like yourself again i'm still getting there really
1: yeah, so after the accident, or after they were able to take the, the catheter out, I, I started moving and got very like anxious to get back into jiu-jitsu. I, started, I think I started teaching again in September. So the accident happened in April. I was able to start teaching around September, October, maybe a little bit. And then in January 2017, I started sparring, but it just something didn't feel right so on june on 2017 i go to colombia to visit my family on the way back i have this sharp pain on the back of my neck a few days later i'm on the mat warming up and i feel i'm, I'm having a heart attack i don't know what's going on a good friend and and student is a cardiologist so i'm like man i don't know what's going on with me i think i'm having like a heart attack or something i have a lot of chest pain so we finish class he rushes me to his office he does all these kinds of tests and he's like dude you, your heart is good nothing's nothing with your heart i don't know what's going on i think i have maybe lyme disease or something like that i go to the doctor get tested for all these kind of things or maybe a, a pulmonary embolism nothing comes out they say you know what maybe it's just viral give it a few months see if it goes away Three months go by. It's, it's, it's not going away. It's getting worse. I feel I cannot breathe. They take all these x-rays. Everything looks good. My lungs look good. My heart looks good. I, I start feeling like some digestive kind of issues and symptoms. It's hard to lay on my back and breathe. I you just can't get any air in. When I'm sleeping, I have to sleep on my side because because if I sleep on the other side, I cannot breathe at all. Now we're in January of 2018, they take another x-ray and all of a sudden they notice my liver, it's all the way up pretty much where my lung should be. The deduction is, or, or what this is uh, representative of, is that my diaphragm had lost, complete loss of muscle tone on my diaphragm and that allowed my liver and the lack of muscle tone from the diaphragm allowed the liver and the part of the intestines to come up. Into the space that was supposed to be occupied by the lung, and that's why I cannot breathe. So, after now, at least we know what's going on, they do a few tests and are able to determine that it's not the diaphragm that's injured, but it's the phrenic nerve. Luckily, through one of the surgeons, they find this doctor called Dr. Matthew Kaufman, who specializes in that type of surgeries, repairing nerves and grafting nerves, or doing like what you call as tent, like bypassing areas of the nerve that are damaged he's a a great man too people love this guy and i can see why because he has a a great personality a lot of times they say surgeons can be very cocky and very arrogant he's the opposite very creative he came up with this procedure they do a surgery on my phrenic nerve and then i start being able to breathe now i'm like way better than i was before still still bothers me and there's still things that are not right but i'll take it in, in any day Yeah, that's the story of that process.
0: So thank you for sharing that. Incredible. Do you still ride your motorcycle?
1: No, I used to ride my motorcycle to go skydiving.
0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anything else?
1: (laughs) I used to ride my motorcycle to go skydiving. And I also used to ride my motorcycle to volunteer at the the aquarium to clean it up and where the sharks were and all of that. And after the accident, it, it was... I think it was a great thing that the accident happened because it's one of those challenging times in your life, like the pandemic, where you can sit down and reevaluate what you are about, what life is about, what the priorities of of you being alive at this moment should should be. No, I, the, the there was really no need for for a motorcycle. It's not something that I I need in my life. It's something that clearly brings a risk. There's not enough reward in assuming that risk in order for me to take it right now. Maybe when I'm 65 or 70, I'll, I'll get a bike again. I don't know. I don't have a motorcycle anymore.
0: I remember before the accident, you used to show up at the OG Balance Studios uh, on no, Bonzo Street, and we'd be training, and we'd do the big open mat, and then you would be beating up all the purple belts. You'd be kicking my butt. Then at the end, we'd all walk out, and then you'd jump on your motorcycle and drive away. I'm like, that guy's a legend. I'm oh like, <laughs> comes in, beats everyone's up, and drives away on his motorcycle. Man, that's right out of the movies. I I don't know.
1: I don't know about that. But I appreciate the memory and the sentiment. And that's an image uh, that you have of me and I'll I'll take it. Thank you so much. That's uh,
0: (laughs) switch it over a little bit here. I call this share your secrets that the listeners get to know you a little bit more when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body. What do you do? I train jujitsu or go to church. Jets are in church, hard to beat those two. That's awesome. How about, is there a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book?
1: There have been several. When I was in, in, in university or college, there was this book called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And real quick, it, it, it's this journey, this, this shepherd takes looking for a treasure at the end. I, I believe it goes like this that the shepherd ends up in the place where he started. journey that's where the treasure has been the whole time so it it just points out that what's valuable and good and and worthy in our life is usually in front of our eyes but we won't recognize it unless we embark on on the journey it speaks also to the journey from white to black belt you know like you start this journey from white to black belt and maybe you've heard it before but a a lot of black belts including myself say once i got my black belt i realized that i knew didn't know any jiu-jitsu and my journey in jiu-jitsu was just starting. The best way to start it is with the basics or the fundamentals. I think those two are connected. That's been a, a good book that I think gave me a lot of perspective in a lot of things.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That, that book also reminded me of an older book called Acres of Diamonds. I forget who wrote it, but it's basically a person looking for diamonds and they travel the world and the diamond mine was in their backyard. Literally, there was literally diamonds in their backyard and he went across the country and left his family. And literally, if he just dug in his backyard and never left home, he would have been better off. I'll geek out a little bit in jujitsu here. You'll never master it. It's just so fun to do. I remember going three, four times a week to jujitsu for years and getting, I felt like I was getting worse. Mm -hmm. I I had 50% of 200 techniques in my head where I didn't really master any of them. I I just had all these techniques in my head and I was just getting worse. One of the instructors was Drew Vogel and he pulled me aside and he said, you got to go back to the basics class and I want you to do the combatives, the fundamentals, and just stick with those three dozen moves. That's 36 moves. From that, I came with a love of basics. And it's so humbling where probably I went through teaching it for five, six years, the combatives, and then watching it the the course seven times complete taking notes and doing it with my son and literally and I still learned something the eighth time I watch that video there's always some little nuance some little uh, angle or technique oh well, I forgot about that what do you think it is which so hard to master it's like a lifelong pursuit
1: I think we we get it because we get in the way our brain gets in the way as our the name of the school is Milaki Flow and the word Flow is very important in the name because The the state of flow or the state of Roush, I think it's how Nietzsche defined it, is this state where you are fully aware of present moment and nothing else matters. And uh, there are no thoughts. You're just doing and there's no time. Things are just happening and you're just a part of it. And it's I, I think it's a great state of of mind or, or being or, or consciousness when you think about it there's no thought process you can reproduce this a lot in, in jiu-jitsu and that's why i love jitsu so much is because you are just like sparring and you're just taking the information or the feedback given to you and just going with it and and, and flowing with it that's what we, that's why you flow in jiu-jitsu that, or that's what you at least want to try to accomplish when we start thinking about things too much or we get in the way of it in a very brainiac way i believe that a lot of the problems that we encounter or the conflict we create is just us and our brain getting in the way of allowing things to transpire and how how i would describe it is just accepting the, the hand of god guiding you through it and letting it happen I think that's the biggest challenge towards mastery.
0: Just to synthesize what you said there, what's the benefit of Jiu-Jitsu? You learn how to defend yourself and it's a great sport. You can do tournaments. It helps you to stop overthinking. It helps you simplify and it helps you accept what's in front of you and take what's there. I think what Elliot Gracie said, I never submitted anyone. They submitted themselves. If you go what they give you, whatever they give you, that's what you take. And that's your next move. It simplifies what's in front of you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I agree with you. Yes, and that's it. What's your personal definition of success? My personal definition of
1: success would be this. We all have days that we cannot wait for them to be over. And we all have days that we wish would last forever. I think success is being able to make those days that we wish would last forever become more recurrent and more prominent in our lives. I think the formula for that is through observation of yourself and your day and understanding that we, or at least in my personal experience, I extract joy from, I I need to learn and understand and identify the small moments, the small everyday moments Where I can extract joy from and reproduce those because those are the ones that are gonna determine how my day goes, not the big moments, not the vacation, not buying a car or a house, or but it's the small moments. So if if I serve the small moments that bring me joy every day and reproduce them or repeat them, then it's very probable that I'll have more days that I wish would last forever than days that I cannot wait for them.
0: to. Be- Thanks for sharing that. Self-reflection, self-awareness, making small adjustments, appreciating the simple things in front of you and try to replicate them and finding the simple things and seeing if you can bring them more into your life in a more frequent way. That is awesome. How about what values do you try to pass on to your students?
1: I think I just try to be a a good person and as best as I can and a a good citizen and try to be an example of that as best as I can, a good father, a good husband, a good friend and be an example of that through how I conduct myself and I run my, my school, how I teach
0: Lead by example. That's what you're doing. Hey, three more questions and we're wrapping up. Here's a fun one. If you could spend a day with any jujitsu instructor alive or dead, who would it be?
1: Two come to mind, Elio Gracie at his ranch in Brazil or Holz Gracie, who many say is the responsible for a lot of the innovation in modern jujitsu, Holtz Gracie
0: hickson's book breathe he he mentions how there was no triangle until holes brought it from a judo school holes brought the triangle into jujitsu. i believe that when i read it that was one of the things i got out of hickson's book uh, yeah yeah he, he said elio never back in the day him and carlson never did triangles like that wasn't a move in jiu-jitsu and i think holes found it somewhere
1: and a lot of, of wrestling too he brought into jiu-jitsu apparently. really oh that's yes. wild
0: so Ellie on holes. Wow. Phenomenal. Two more questions. You mentioned back when you were 10 years old, you're splitting time with your mom and your dad. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table, when you were 10 years old, what would you like to tell them?
1: Maybe just say, thank you. Thank you for the life they have provided and the example.
0: That's great. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? I think it would say God,
1: family, country, and then I would add jujitsu to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's all God, family, country, and jujitsu. Wow.
1: a reminder of the guiding principle in my life and and the priority of of who I should serve through my life and everything I do.
0: God, family, country, and jujitsu... I think that is about as good a spot as any to wrap it up. Alberto rabio first off, i like to thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Always awesome to see you. I'd like to thank you for the dozens of ass whoopings you've given me on the mat and always leaving me with a lesson at the end. Always showing me something that I didn't know. <laughs> You'd kick my butt and tell me what I need to do improve. So I really appreciate you, man. If people are looking for you and your academy online, where can they find you on the internet? I
1: mean, like- milockyflow.com or MilokiFlow on Instagram and Facebook. That's, you know, that's the that's the best place to find us. So, yeah, and if, if, if you guys are around in Philly or in Miami or Biscayne and next year in Charleston, please uh, feel free to come by and say hi and train and enroll and, and we'll share some jujitsu and grab something to eat
0: afterwards i'll put the website in the show notes uh where the, the people in that, those areas they can find you but alberto awesome to see you man wish you nothing but can, success with the new academy in charleston and keep rocking man you're one of the good ones i appreciate it
1: thank you joe man I appreciate the time and the, the opportunity to awesome. sit here and chat with you my best everybody take care bye